Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Askvetik standa, heiter yggdrasel, horbadmer ausin, huita auri, thadan koma dogvar, tharsi dalla falla, stender a yvergrön, urdar brunni. I know an ash tree stands named Yggdrasil, a tall tree made wet with white mud. From there come the dews that fall in the valleys. It stands forever green over Urther's well. Typically, I like to use Caroline Larrington's second edition translation of the Poetic Edda whenever I provide English versions of Old Norse poetry. But in this case, I thought it might be fun to throw in a translation that I did on my own. Going forward, I will try to remember to call out all of my own translations, which I will be more likely to provide in cases where I feel like other translations have sacrificed an important nuance and meaning for the purpose of poetic effect. This, however, is not one of those cases. Newcomers to Norse mythology are often looking for symbols, partly because modern popular media have conditioned a lot of people to think that, quote, Vikings must have had cryptic pictographic symbols for literally everything, and oftentimes they will mistakenly refer to these imagined symbols as runes. Runes are real, of course, and to be fair, there are also a few repeated graphic symbols that we do find carved into stones and other things from the Norse period, but for the most part, runes are just an alphabet, and the few repeated geometric symbols we know of that show up in online searches either have unclear meanings if they were actually used in ancient times, or they are early modern inventions that were never used in medieval Norse society. But whereas ancient Norse tradition may not have been so focused on cryptic geometric patterns as your local tattoo shop might want you to believe, Norse and the broader umbrella of Germanic paganism was a highly symbolic religion. And if I had to pick what I thought was the most prominent and pervasive symbol of ancient Germanic religion, it would be a tree. In the last episode, we touched on the relationship between humans and trees. Poetically, it turns out, humans are equivalent to trees, and even originate from trees in the myths. But the influence of trees doesn't stop at their relationship to humanity. We've talked before about how Norse mythology preserves a memory of one particular flavor of Northwestern Germanic paganism. It gets a lot of focus because it provides the most extensive corpus we have of pre-Christian Germanic literature. But gods with similar names and some similar stories, essentially a larger umbrella of the same religious tradition, was once held throughout all of Germanic-speaking Northern Europe, including places like England where a lot of the medieval Christian literature actually preserves a few glimpses into the pre-Christian mindset as well. The monster Grendel in Beowulf, for example, is described as an Eotin, which is the native Old English version of the Old Norse Jotun, which we often see translated as giant. Beowulf also takes place in 6th century Scandinavia, and was potentially composed as early as 725 AD, which is earlier than the Viking Age, although the dating of the poem itself is a pretty controversial topic, and there are reasons to think it might be younger. But somewhere around that same time in England, an anonymous poet also composed some early version of a poem that would eventually come to be known as Dream of the Rude, where rude, spelled R-O-O-D, is an old-fashioned word for cross. 
Dream of the Rood is a fascinating example of the pagan cultural mindset reconciling itself to Christianity. In this poem, the author claims to have had a vision of a towering, glorious tree, all sprinkled with gold and wrapped in jewels. He makes sure to mention that this tree was no ordinary gallows for the wicked, no old hanging tree. And in fact, it turns out that the tree is sentient. It begins speaking to the author and tells him the story of the crucifixion of Christ from the point of view of the cross, who experienced crucifixion alongside Jesus. The tree explains that it was once cut down from the edge of a forest and fashioned into a cross for executing criminals, but found itself just by chance serving as the instrument of death for the savior of the world. Jesus is portrayed like a classic Norse or Germanic young hero in this poem, who quickly and eagerly climbs the cross himself to bravely meet his fate. Though the tree claims to have had the power to have killed all of Jesus' enemies then and there, he chooses instead to perform the task required of him by his Lord. The tree relates that both he and Jesus have to bear the nails that are hammered into Jesus' hands to secure him to the cross, and whereas the soldiers pierce Jesus' side with a spear, so the tree in the vision bleeds from one side as well. When Jesus dies and is laid in a tomb, the cross is hewn down and buried in a pit. But just as Jesus is resurrected, so is the cross discovered, pulled from the ground, and bedecked with golden jewels. Having served Jesus essentially as a loyal thane, the cross seems to have become a tree again at this point, honored and glorified by all the world. And in the same way that Jesus preserves his wounds after resurrection, showing them to his apostles for proof of who he is, so this glorious tree retains the scars from the nails and the blood from the crucifixion, which are seen amongst its ornamentation when the author looks carefully. Near the end of the poem, the author says, quote, I prayed then to the cross with joyous heart and eagerness, where I was all alone, companionless, my spirit was inspired with keenness for departure, and I spent much time in longing. Now my hope of life is that I may approach the tree of triumph. Alone more often than all other men, honor it well. My wish for that is great within my heart, and my hope for support is turned towards the cross. I wait each day for when the cross of God, which here on earth I formerly beheld, may fetch me from this transitory life and carry me to where there is great bliss and joy in heaven. End quote. This unifying of experience and purpose between the Christian Lord and the animistic tree, who is rewarded for supporting and submitting to its religious superior, creates a fascinating justification for continued veneration of trees within a Christian context, no longer as symbols of the pagan worldview, but as participants in the Christian doctrine of salvation. The stanza I recited at the beginning of this episode is from Voluspa, the first poem in the Poetic Edda, which is our foremost source for Norse mythology, and it describes another towering, glorious tree called Yggdrasil. Although trees are commonly stand-ins for people in Norse poetry, the context here tells us very clearly that we are dealing with an actual tree in this case, specifically an ash tree. And in the Norse worldview, the entire cosmos is oriented around this tree. The sources don't ever describe the actual creation of Yggdrasil. Whether it's one of Odin's creations or whether it existed before the rest of the world, we don't know for sure. Although we do know that it serves an important purpose for the Norse gods. The poem Grimnismal details how the gods ride to Yggdrasil daily, except Thor who goes on foot, where they meet to pass their various judgments. Grimnismal also provides us two different names for the tree, one of which is Yggdrasil's ash, and the other is Larother. 
Ladrother is one of those obscure, hard-to-decipher words. But the most common guess about what it means in the academic community is something like causer of harm or arranger of betrayal. That may seem like an odd name for a tree that serves as the linchpin for the entire cosmos, until you realize that the other name, Yggdrasil, more clearly means terrifier horse. Currently, we only have a theoretical understanding of these names, and that theory rests on a very short anecdote given to us by Odin in a poem called Havamal. In stanzas 138 and 139, he tells us, quote, I know that I hung on a windswept tree, nine long nights, wounded with a spear, dedicated to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree of which no man knows from where its roots run. With no bread did they refresh me, nor drink from a horn. Downwards I peered, I took up the runes, screaming I took them, then I fell back from there. End quote. This story is one of many in which Odin goes to extreme lengths to gain knowledge. In this case, human sacrificing himself to himself for the purpose of obtaining whatever it is he gets out of the runes, whether that is the knowledge to read them or the knowledge to perform magic spells with them. It's never explicitly stated what it is that he obtains from getting the runes. But assuming this windswept tree with roots of an ambiguous source is indeed a reference to Yggdrasil, and if that is indeed a place where Odin once hung himself, then suddenly we can interpret this through the lens of a relatively common poetic kenning, or in other words, a poetic reference to something simple by means of a more complicated and artistic turn of phrase. Specifically, there are a few poems wherein a gallows is referred to as the horse of the hanged man, and it just so happens that Ygr, which means terrifier, is one of over 200 names for Odin given in various places throughout the sources. So the idea is that the Yggdrasil, or the terrifier horse, is a poetic allusion to the idea that Odin once hung himself on this tree in his relentless quest for wisdom. Taking this one step farther, stanza three of a skaldic poem called Haraldsdrapa by Haldor Skwaldri refers to a gallows as, quote, the grim harm tree of King Sigar's enemy, end quote. If a gallows can be referred to with descriptions such as harm tree, then the negative implications of the name Larother can potentially make sense through this lens as well. At the risk of allowing myself to muse a little bit, this notion of the tree at the cosmic center being used as a gallows for the chief of the gods is interesting in light of how the author of Dream of the Rude took special care to mention that the towering tree from his vision was better than a common gallows for the wicked. The association there seems to have remained. And in fact, the tree still becomes the instrument of death for the more newly adopted Lord of all the earth. To be clear, there are no stories about Woden hanging from a tree that have survived from pre-Christian England. However, the idea of trees being central to worship is a broadly Germanic concept, and sacrifice by hanging is described amongst Germanic people as far back as the Roman Iron Age. Although I should mention that there is some controversy around the idea of just how accurate those descriptions really are. Another name for Yggdrasil is Mimameder, which is used only in the poem Fjolsvinsmål and means Mimi's tree. Both Rudolf Zimek and John Lindau assume that Mimi is probably a variation on the name of the god Mimir, who we are told by Snorri owns a well situated under Yggdrasil. One other name used in the poem Vafthrudnismal is Hodmimis Holt, which is interpreted as a name for Yggdrasil using the same information about Mimir as well. 
Hodmimus Holt is probably my personal favorite reference to the tree because, in my opinion, it helps ground our notions of how this tree was probably conceptualized by ancient Norse pagans. Oftentimes, modern artistic renderings of Yggdrasil show it floating in space or standing alone on a wide open field. But the word Holt here denotes something more like a forest or a patch of woodland or, at the very least, a grove of trees. Potentially tying into this idea are the Merseburg charms, which are the only known surviving pre-Christian literature written in German, or more specifically Old High German. They were discovered in 1841, having been mysteriously written into a blank page of a Christian liturgical manuscript in the 9th or 10th century by some unknown cleric for some unknown reason in Fulda, Germany. The first one is a charm for being freed from chains. The second one is a healing charm, and it tells a story about the gods Wodan and Balder riding to the Holt. The phrase is Wurrensi Holtza, where Balder's horse is suddenly injured in that it dislocates a joint or something along those lines. Some of the goddesses are present as well, and they, along with Wodan, enchant the horse such that it becomes healed. Wodan and Balder in this German story obviously correspond with Odin and Balder from the Norse corpus, and variations on the formula found in the charm are also found in various places in Scandinavia as well. One interpretation of the story is that the reason these characters were riding to the Holt is because, as Vafthrudnismal seems to suggest, this is the place where Yggdrasil stands, and Yggdrasil is where the gods ride to render judgments every day. Michael J. Swisher would have us keep in mind that this interpretation is only a supposition. He prefers another interpretation wherein the gods are riding to the forest on a hunt because of the way similar phrases are most commonly used in Old High German literature. However, as Joseph S. Hopkins points out, references to groves of trees serving as sacred spaces or areas of worship are a constantly recurring staple of the ancient Germanic record, the earliest of which stretch all the way back to descriptions given by Roman authors, and the latest of which extend over a millennia beyond the Christianization of the North Germanic people. So it seems to me that a Germanic story placing deities in a grove, or Holt in this case, is very unlikely to intend no religious significance for the Holt itself. This is some of my own musing again, but given what we know about the religious and poetic relationship between trees and both humans and gods— it occurs to me that a grove of trees is even visually reminiscent of a council of gods meeting together to pass judgments. Yggdrasil is often called the world tree by modern scholars because it falls in line with a common motif found in religious traditions from all over the world, wherein the various realms of the universe are in some way connected or anchored to a tree. In the Norse context, Yggdrasil connects the world by means of its roots most explicitly, Stanza 31 of Grimnismal explains, quote, Three roots there grow in three directions under Yggdrasil's ash. Hell lives under one, under the second the frost giants, under the third humankind. End quote. The word Larrington renders as frost giants here is Hrimthursar, which we mentioned in episode one were not actually considered to be gigantic beings, even though giant is the common translation for the word thurs. And hell, in this case, is spelled with one L, and references the Norse world of the dead, not the Christian hell with two Ls. So, Grimnismal has the roots of the world tree demarcating the world of the dead, 
the world of the so-called giants, and the world of humanity, interestingly dividing the cosmos up into what essentially amounts to the afterlife, the unseen world, and the perceptible world. In terms of their physical locations, this is where things start to get a little hairy. The original text of this stanza from Grimness Mall uses derivations of the word under twice, which is partly why I've gone to great lengths in previous episodes and provided examples to lay a foundation for the idea that we don't have to take this as literally as we are inclined to in modern English. Greco-Roman depictions of the, quote, underworld as a location beneath the earth have preconditioned us to think that when hell is specified as existing underneath one of Yggdrasil's roots, we immediately imagine some dark, cavernous place underground. And then with that imagery already in place, we read the line about Hrimthursar living under a second root, and it may not be exactly what we expect, but we think, hey, I can accept a description of supernatural antagonists living underground. There's still a lot of modern Scandinavian folklore about subterranean mischief makers, for example. But then we read that third line, stating that humankind lives under one of these roots, and we start struggling for an explanation. I certainly don't live underground, so what does that mean? Is Yggdrasil in the sky somewhere? Is there something in the sky the Norse people might have looked up at and interpreted it as a tree root above them? And now because of this focus on the word under, everything else that is said to be under Yggdrasil in the myths is suddenly being imagined as underground somewhere. And we forget that the simplest interpretation of something being described as under a tree has always just been that the tree towers over it, such as when you rest underneath a tree on a sunny day. Once again, usage of the word under in this stanza is admittedly weird, but I personally choose to interpret this as meaning these worlds are under the purview of, or in other words, demarcated by Yggdrasil's roots, as opposed to being literally underneath them. This isn't to say that the world of the dead in particular never carried any notion of being underground. In fact, there are a lot of clues that point in exactly that direction. But I find that this interpretation helps me avoid a lot of mental gymnastics that are otherwise required for wrapping my head around how the locations of the universe are physically put together. And notice that so far, we are still very easily dealing with the realms of the world as existing on a relatively flat plane. Snorri seems to have struggled with this concept in the prose edda as well, and ended up coming to his own interpretations that don't involve a flat plane. In his description, one root is among the Asir, the gods, one is among the Hrimthursar, in the area that used to be the yawning void called Ginungagap before the world was created, and the third extends across Niflheim, which Snorri associates with hell. So his account possibly trades out the root demarcating the lands of humankind with one for the home of the gods. Although, Snorri does also sort of imply that Osgarther is within Midgarther at one point, and even here, he goes on to say that the third route, the one that marks Niflheim, also extends to heaven, and that every day when the Asir ride to Yggdrasil, they have to ride up there by way of a bridge, called by a couple of different names, as most things are in Norse mythology, either Bivrost, Bilrost, or Osbru. And this bridge is literally just the common rainbow. Most commonly, we see bivrost mispronounced as bifrost, but it's actually a compound made from the word biv, meaning tremble or shake, and rost, which means rest, in a sense that denotes something akin to a mile. A rest is essentially the distance one would travel before taking a rest. So bivrost seems to mean tremble mile, 
which I suppose could be a reference to the way a rainbow sometimes shimmers in the light. Similarly, Bilrost, which Rudolf Zimek speculates may be the older term, means momentary rest, probably referencing the way rainbows appear for only a moment and then disappear. And then the third name Snorri gives us, Osbru, just means Godbridge. Medieval Norse society conceptualized the rainbow as being composed of three colors, and Snorri explains that the red we see in the rainbow is actually fire that prevents the Jotnar and other beings from crossing it, although he also claims that at the end of the world, the Jotnar will cross it anyway. So in Snorri's view, whereas humans are limited to traversing the world on just a horizontal axis, the gods are able to traverse both a horizontal and vertical axis. Earlier in the story, he asserts that Osgarther, where the gods made their home, is another name for the ancient city of Troy, and that it was a place where many events took place, quote, both on earth and aloft, end quote. So how accurate is Snorri's conception of Norse cosmology? Unfortunately, it's kind of impossible to say. At the end of the day, Snorri is a Christian scholar. Yes, he lived closer to the time of Norse paganism than we do, uh, although he was still hundreds of years removed from it. And yes, he appears to have had access to some sources that no longer survive, although he frequently contradicts himself and clearly embellishes the material and interprets mythology through a learned Christianity-influenced, factually incorrect model of medieval-style history. Snorri is an academic with opinions, just like Rudolf Zimek, whose book I frequently cite, or John Lindau or Caroline Larrington. Scholars are often wrong and are allowed to be wrong. Oftentimes, they revise their opinions over time, and oftentimes that's in response to other scholars disagreeing with them. An incorrect idea can frequently be the catalyst for a better idea. So whatever amount you put your trust in Snorri will ultimately have to be up to you. But the key takeaway is that it is fundamentally okay to disagree with Snorri if you feel like there is something he may be missing. He's only human. In my case, although God's traversing the sky is hardly a novel concept, I lean a little more toward the idea that the original pagan model of the cosmos may have been a lot flatter than Snorri sometimes makes it out to be. For a little bit of archaeological evidence regarding the shape of the universe in the Norse pagan mind, we can turn to the way farms and villages were designed in ancient Norse Scandinavia. Christopher Abram notes that farms in pagan Sweden and Norway were centered around a special protective tree in the middle of an enclosure that immediately surrounded a farmhouse. This seems to mirror descriptions we get from Snorri, that there is a beautiful hall that stands under Yggdrasil and that Midgardr is protected by an enormous enclosure made from the eyelashes of the primordial Jotun Ymir. Abram, like many others, suggests this as evidence for the idea that the myth of the world tree originated outside of Iceland. Matthias Nordvig agrees in his chapter on cosmology in Volume 3 of Pre-Christian Religions of the North. He notes that the design of Mythgarther described by Snorri is also reminiscent of hill forts and ring forts dated between 200 and 650 AD that feature circular enclosures with a building next to a large tree or next to a large post which probably represents a tree in the center. And in fact, even Adam of Bremen, who provided a second-hand account of a pagan temple at Uppsala, Sweden in the 11th century, described the temple next to a prominent tree, all surrounded by an enclosure. And there's also one other feature of the area surrounding the sacred tree in all of these places, the mythology, the farms, the forts, and the temples, namely a well, and perhaps in the mythology, more than one well. 
always lying beneath the world tree, which again, doesn't have to mean underground. These wells are the source of wisdom and fate, and seem to be a popular place for gods to deposit body parts. But we'll save wells and fate for next time on Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. Sources for this episode include Cosmology by Matthias Nordvig in Pre-Christian Religions of the North, Volume 3, 2020. Dictionary of Northern Mythology by Rudolf Zemeck, 2010. Dream of the Rude, translated by Richard Hamer, 1970. Evergreen Ash, Ecology and Catastrophe in Old Norse Myth and Literature by Christopher Abram, 2019. Norse Mythology, A Guide to the Gods, Heroes, Rituals, and Beliefs by John Lindau, 2001. Sacred Tree and Holy Grove by Joseph S. Hopkins at mimisbrunner.info, 2020. The Forest in Old High German Literature by Michael J. Swisher in Amsterdamer Beiträge zur Älteren Germanistik, 1988. The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014, and The Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.